Well, we're in a series looking at the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, and what's remarkable about this prayer is that it's eight lines of praise and petition. Eight lines. Uh, prayer is an experience with God. It's an experience of awe and intimacy. It's a, it's a conversation with God. It's an encounter with God. And the wonderful thing about prayer is that it's a complex practice without being complicated. And yet it's a simple practice without being simplistic. This is a wonderful thing that we're invited to. And in the first line of the Lord's Prayer, we're invited into prayer and into praise. If you have your Bibles, would you look with me please at Matthew chapter 6. And let's just skip, Tom, to verse 9 that says, Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, the first two words of this prayer, our Father, um, they represent a, a, a very um, major seismic shift. Now, it's not something that, that we pay much attention to because of our familiarity with the material. It's something that's, that's quite easy to miss, something that's easy to, to skip over. But listen... For the people who first heard these words, when Jesus first spoke them, it would have been an entirely different experience. Uh, they would have heard something that they had never heard before. And so it's hard for us to imagine the ripple that would have been moving through the crowd when Jesus would have addressed God in a familiar personal way when jesus would have said pray then like this our father uh, we miss the the seismic shift we we miss the shock wave that would have crashed upon not just the shore of convention but the shore of unconvention in what he says in this moment when he says address god as our father no absolutely not we do not understand the current and the undercurrent in these words of Jesus. Now the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5 through 7, this represents the first of five discourses throughout the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is teaching. And the important thing about the Sermon on the Mount is that it happens early in the ministry of Jesus, early. And in many ways, this is an introduction to what Myron calls the, the way of Jesus or the Jesus way. And my friend Danny Mann says, if you're reading the Sermon on the Mount correctly, you will see that there was enough material. Jesus said enough things in the Sermon on the Mount to get him killed. Because of how different it was. Because what, what he was calling people to. And, and the most radical thing that we just, I don't know, for some reason we just, we just pass right over it, we just skip right over it. Jesus says, God is your heavenly father and you can call him father. You can call him father. Now in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus makes reference to God as your father, talking to the crowd. He says, your father, 15 times. 15 times Jesus does this. Uh, he will address God as our father once, and he will address God as my father once. 15 times, one and one, throughout the Sermon on the Mount. 
in these four or five verses, when Jesus is talking about prayer, he says, your father, five times. A third of the time. Our father, one time. Now, it may not mean much to us, but when Jesus first said this, people would have stood up. They would have took notice. Now, the reason about for this is because you just didn't speak to God this way. You just didn't do it. I mean, the fatherhood of God is not a central theme of the Old Testament. I mean, you'll find the word father uh, attributed to God throughout the Hebrew scriptures, but it's always as an analogy. You will never find the word father given as a personal, attributed to him as a personal or intimate way to address him. Not in the Old Testament. So the fatherhood of God is, is, is not a concept that's very much pushed in the Old Testament. And even in the Jewish circles of Jesus' day, I mean, they would speak to God with words such as sovereignty, lordship, glory, or grace. But never, never once in the Jewish circles of Jesus' day would anyone address God as Father. You just wouldn't do it. And so Jesus comes, and, and, and in this one sermon, 15 times, in this one prayer, five times, he says, when you pray, understand the person that you're talking to. Yes, he is sovereign. Yes, he is Lord. Yes, he is grace. Yes, he is almighty. Yes, he is all those things. But when you pray to him, the first words out of your mouth are, our father. And so Jesus comes along and he's the first one to personally address God as father. Do you remember the first time that he does? You see, uh, Joseph and Mary take 12-year-old Jesus to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of the Passover, as was their custom. And when the feast, the celebration was over, uh, they pack up and they return home. But you see, someone forgot to pack up 12-year-old Jesus. He was probably listening to his Walkman at the time and didn't hear them when they said, okay, it's time to get on the camel and, and go home. And so they leave and they travel about a day, the Bible says, before they notice that he's gone. And so they travel another day back to Jerusalem and the Bible says they spend another day looking for him. But where does one go to find a misplaced Messiah? The lost are found box? And so the Bible says they're searching. They're, they're, I love it when people go like this. <laughs> they're searching and they're searching. I'm, I'm, the message is getting through. There's, you know, some people, they're driving home going, oh, that's it, I get it. They're searching and they're searching and they're searching for Jesus. And finally they think, well, let's go back to the church building and see if we can find him there. And so they go back to the temple, and there they find Jesus, and he's among the teachers of the law, and he's listening, and he's answering their questions, and he's giving questions of his own for them to answer. The Bible tells us something very remarkable, that the people are amazed, that they marvel not just at the questions that Jesus is asking, but at the answers that he's giving. Now, listen, I'm fascinated by the logistics of this, right? Three days. Uh, some people make a case that it might have even been up to five days. And so I, I look at this and I go, okay, well, where did Jesus go at night? And where did he get food? And 
And, and, and Preston, is this the biblical justification for a lock-in? I mean, do, do we have it right here in Scripture that this is why youth groups do lock-ins? And, and, I, and I, le- I think about this story and I think, can you imagine the fallout of leaving your 12-year-old at church for three days? I mean, how does that work out, right? You see, Joseph and Mary leave Jesus at the temple for three days, and it's a heartwarming Bible story. Leave your 12-year-old for three minutes at Sam's, and you get arrested. You know, I mean, oh, the good old days, right? And so I'm, I'm fascinated by this, and, but here's where this, this story takes a really amazing turn. When, when Joseph and Mary, they finally come in contact, and they find Jesus, and they ask Jesus, they say to Jesus, a statement that every parent has said to their teenager ever since the dawn of time when teenagers were invented. They say, why have you treated us this way? <laughs> That's the question. And, and then they say, you have caused us a great deal of stress. You know, so parents from now on, when you look at your teenager, just say, Luke 2.48. You know, Luke 2.48. Well, the the very next verse, it gets really interesting because here's what Jesus says in response to that. He says, why were you looking for me? Why were you looking for me? He says, did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Now, some Bible translations say uh, father's house and some Bible translations say about my father's business. It doesn't really matter which one is which. What matters is... 12-year-old Jesus is saying, don't don't you see? Don't you see? I need to be with my father. It's so amazing to me that 12-year-old Jesus is the one to change our understanding of who God is. And so we would expect that, right? But here's the thing. In the Sermon on the Mount and in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is not just teaching us to do the same. He's inviting us to do the same. Our Father. Our Father. So when you look at these words, this first line of the prayer, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What we notice right away is that we are praying to a personal God. Our Father. We're praying to a caring God, our Father in heaven. We're, we're praying to a familial God, our Father in heaven. We're, we're praying to a relational God. Our, it sounds like East Sunshine, doesn't it? God is the God who cares. The God is the God of love. God is the God of goodness. God is the God of relationships. God is the one who is inviting us, who is beckoning us, who wants to hear from us and says, listen, you're never going to get prayer right until you understand who it is that you're talking to. Because that makes all the difference in the world as to what you say next. And so our Father in heaven is is an invitation for our hearts to be open and our hearts to be aware who we are speaking to. Now, if you look again at verse 9, the second part of that says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You see what this is? It's a declaration of praise. It's a declaration of praise. Jesus says, 
first and foremost, when you're praying, you should be praising God. You should be bringing praise. Now, now what kind of praise? There's two kinds of praise, okay? One is adoration, and one is adulation. It's really important to get these two straight. Uh, adoration is an expression of love and gratitude. It's an expression of respect. Uh, adoration is the basis of devotion. But adulation, on the other hand, is excessive, over-the-top flattery and idolizing. And this pretty much is the basis for a restraining order in real life. And so prayer is not something where we have to go over the top and flatter God to get him to listen to us because of our many words and our clever command. Prayer is adoration, gratitude, the expression of our heart, the basis of gratitude and devotion towards him. So the clue to the kind of praise that we give is found in the word hallowed, hallowed. Uh, that's a word we don't use much anymore right i mean when was the last time you heard the word hallowed and you were not inside chick-fil-a right it just doesn't happen you know this is a word that we don't we don't use much anymore now we hear about hallowed halls and we hear about hallowed ground and and it's a word that's used to speak of something that's sacred or to 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 denote reverence and and really both the english word and the greek word carry the same meaning it's when something that is not common occurs there so uh, think about the places in life where we use the word hallowed you know we use the word hallowed halls to talk about the supreme court or the u.s capitol uh, we use the word hallowed ground in fact uh, arlington national cemetery is recognized as America's most hallowed ground because of the men and women who were killed in the line of duty because they're, they're buried there. And so that ground is, is recognized as hallowed ground. And here's the thing I don't get, that sporting venues and stadiums often refer to their places as hallowed ground and hallowed halls. And I, I, it's so unfortunate that we make such a connection between those two things, right? Uh, between a person who, who paid the ultimate price and gave their life and somebody who does something with a ball. Th those two things shouldn't even be in the same sentence. See, because hallowed ground is sacred ground. It's revered ground. And so any place where someone you love lost their life or someone you love is buried, that place is sacred to you as hallowed ground. And so you can drive around town now, you can drive on the road anywhere in North America and what started out as a custom in Latin America, crosses and markers and temporary makeshift shrines at a particular point along the highway where someone lost their life it's signifying that something happened there and to the family of those who had this happen to them that piece of ground is now sacred ground hollowed ground those of you who drive on i-65 may remember just a few months ago uh north on uh, north of sunshine there's a makeshift area there with 
posters and and ribbons and candles, a, a place that's sacred only to one family because their teenager was killed in that spot. This is what hallowed means. It means sacred, it means, it means uncommon, it means there's a, a special use or a special designation for this. So this word hallowed, it's, it's a complicated word, but it comes from the word hollow, which means to revere, to make holy, to revere, or to make holy, or to consecrate. So here's the question, how do we consecrate or make holy the name of God. Think about the question. How do we consecrate or make holy the name of God? You see, we can't make God something that he already is. We can't, right? I mean, God is love. We, we can't make him love. God is just. We can't make him just. God is good. We can't make him good. God is holy. We can't make him holy. So, Jesus is not teaching us here that the holiness of God depends on our effort. That's not what he's saying. Any more that God being love or being mercy or being good depends on our effort. See? I mean, the good God who does not require performance of us to save us, he would have to forfeit his goodness if he demanded performance for us to come to him. And so it's not something that we're doing that make him that. Jesus is not teaching us that it's our effort. He's teaching us a way to consecrate God. A way to see him as holy. A way to revere him. And it's all wrapped up in this word. Not that we just view the name of God as hallowed, but we respond to the name of God as holy. Not that we just revere his name as holy, but that we receive and live out the holiness of his name. To hallow the name of God means that we ascribe to God ultimate value. Ultimate value. So uh, there's a religious way to consecrate something that you set on a shelf and you worship it or bring it down when you're in trouble. There's an irreligious way to really tear down the shelf and, and, and break the object. But there's a gospel-shaped way that says, I'm going to bind my heart to this one ultimate thing. That God in my life is the only thing I need. I don't need anything else in life except and this is what Jesus is teaching us about prayer, that we start to look at God not by what we can get from him, but that we look at God as someone who wants to be in personal relationship with us, so we call him Father. The thing I value most, my ultimate thing, this one thing. Now those of you who are following along with the Lexio 365, did you, do you remember last Friday's? Last Friday's Lectio 365, I have to read to you just a couple of short paragraphs. Listen to this. The power of prayer depends almost entirely upon my apprehension of who it is with whom I speak. 
when I am scared and hurting, when life feels chaotic and out of control, it is more important than ever to anchor myself in the absolute and eternal truth that I am dearly loved and deeply held by the most powerful being in the universe. Let this be the great non-negotiable in my life, the platform for all my other thoughts, and the plumb line for my prayers. Amen. You see, it's the ultimate thing that a gospel-shaped person is looking to receive from prayer, to worship and praise God. So, I'm trying, I'm trying in my life not to look at prayer as a means to get things, but a means to be with God and to get God and to have his presence, to have him with me as the most important thing that I need. I'm looking to him for his beauty. I'm looking to him for his glory. I'm looking to him for who he is in his goodness. So one of the best ways to hallow the name of God is to see prayer as a way to praise and adore him. If you still have your Bibles, it's not on the screen, but, but, but here's what you need to know. Prayer and how you pray is going to show you how much you believe when Jesus says in verse 8, your Father knows what you need before you ask him. See? The way you pray... And what you pray for is going to show you how much you believe it when Jesus says, even before you say a word, God knows what you need. So I'm trying to make my prayer life a way that I am revealing, I believe this. I believe this. I'm trying to look at prayer as a pathway to praise God and to adore him and to thank him for the good good father that he is. I remember Timothy Keller saying one time, you need uh, soul-filling worship, you need inspiring worship, you, you need life-giving worship, and you need it every day. Every day. So, um, has anyone bought a car recently? Anyone? Um, those of you who have ever bought a car and gotten a payment book in the mail, raise your hand. So Reese bought a used truck the other day, and we're sitting there filling out the paperwork, and the banker says to him, now you're going to get a payment book in the mail. And Reese said, huh? And I just started laughing, right? You know, because video killed the radio star, right? You don't get a payment book anymore, right? Now, can you imagine the days when you got your payment book, and those of you who did, you know what I'm talking about, that with your payment book, you got a letter that said your truck, your car has been paid in full. And so each month, instead of sending a check with your payment book, you just sent a thank you note. Five years of thank you notes, one month at a time. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Prayer is not a coupon book. It's not a payment book. It's not a check requisition form. It's a thank you note a thank you from our heart to adore now listen we're we're still in the stage of life where we enjoy having our kids around don't worry some of you will get there you know just keep just keep pressing on keep plodding through you'll get there and 
And so we're in this stage of our life where we really do miss them when they leave. We miss them when they leave. And okay, so I can walk up to their bedrooms and, and just walking into their room, I'm reminded of them. I'm reminded of them. You know, I, I get a sense of their presence. And depending on who it was and when they left, I also get a sense of their presence as well. But I can walk into the room, and it's not a weird, creepy thing. I can just, I can just, trust me, I can walk into their room, and I'm reminded of them. And, and, and just for me, it just, it just triggers this emotion in me that I just can't wait to see them again. So maybe that's what God is telling us when he says, you need a special place, a sacred place where you and I meet. And that place is hollow ground. It's sacred ground. Yeah, yeah, God is with us at all times, in all places, in all ways, but God is teaching us something here. You want to know my heart? You want to seek my heart? You want to grab a hold of me for who I am? Then let's meet. Pick a time. Pick a place. And make that our place. We need this. And Jesus knows we need this. And so he says, when you pray, remember first and foremost, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Would you stand, please? Think about all of the attributes and character qualities that we use in our life and the Bible uses to describe God. Just one second, think about it. Uh, the Bible describes God as a God who is merciful, who's slow to anger, who abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness, a God who forgives iniquity and transgression of sin, a God who is almighty, a God who is the great I am, a God who is the most high, a God who is faithful and forgiving, a God who is good and gracious, a God who is infinite and impartial, a God who is holy and just, a God who is majestic and miraculous, a God who is merciful and mighty, a God who is sovereign and singular, a God who is unchanging and unalterable, and we, well, we call him Father. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Holy Spirit, apply this teaching to our heart today. Lead us to the beauty of God. Draw us into your glory as we adore you, Lord, through Jesus, our Savior. We all proclaim.